0: Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 33. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of meal until it was all leavened. All these things Jesus spoke to the multitudes in parables. He did not speak to them without a parable, so that what was spoken through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, I will open his mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the foundation of the world. In verse 31-32 I'm to read. He presented another parable to them saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. see We've been looking at the parables of the Lord Jesus. And as Jesus says to his disciples, who are the elect of God, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom. But to all the others, it has not been granted to know these mysteries. So to those whom God is going to call to himself, who has already called to himself, these parables uh, are given so that they will understand something of the truths about the kingdom of God. But all others will be left in their state of hardened belief. And they are left there because of the hardness of their hearts. And therefore, because of the hardness of their hearts, like the scribes and the Pharisees, and like much of the multitude, Jesus says, In hearing they will not hear, and in seeing they will not be able to see. It is God's judicial judgment upon them for their rebellion. Now we've looked at two parables thus far. We've looked at the parable of the sower and the seed. We've looked at the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we could say that those two parables fundamentally have been teaching us about who are citizens of the kingdom of God. Who belongs to God. Mere professors of Christian religion are not going to make it. That is, those in the parable of the sower and the seed, those where the seed... Uh, Even fell upon the rocky soil it sprang up quickly, but because there was no firm root to it at all, and when, when distress came, and tribulation came, persecution, then it was just too much. The demands of being a Christian were too much, and they just apostatize, and give up. Or the seed that fell upon the thorny soil, where the love of the world just chokes it out. We're told in the Scriptures. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father, is not in that person. So, the only soil, the only soil that bears fruit is the last soil, the good soil, where the seed goes down and is and able to take root. It's good soil. It's not choked out by the care of the world. And it bears fruit. It's the only soil that bears fruit. That is the only soil that is the Christian. And so there is the citizen of the kingdom. Not just those who profess to be, but those whose lives bear the fruit they belong to the kingdom. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, there are some who, for a time, remain secretive as to who they really are. The, uh, the wheat represents the sons of the kingdom. Now this is Jesus' interpretation. He says the sons the wheat are the sons of the kingdom the tares are those whom the devil has come and sown in this wheat field those are the sons of the evil one and jesus says you allow the wheat and the tares to grow and in time they will the wheat the tares will expose themselves but if they don't fully expose themselves in this world on the day of judgment everything will be exposed because jesus says at the end, he'll send his angels and they will gather up uh, the tares and will burn those tares. And we know that is a symbol of eternal destruction. So when, when we're dealing with God's Word, we've got to allow the Scripture to teach us what that Word says, and we must resist imposing upon the Bible our preferences. Now that may be easier said than done. And there are a lot of times when people are not out to try to deliberately distort the Scriptures. There is a sincerity uh, that they have. It's not trying to cast dispersion that people have this evil motive. Not necessarily an evil motive, but because they have a certain system of theology And they want to be consistent with that theology. They want to impose that on the scriptures. That's what we have to resist. Yes, there there are doctrines in the Bible. And yes, there is a system of doctrine in the Bible. But we've come to know there's a system. We've come to know there's a unity. How? Because of the texts that tell us so. In other words, we must do, I'm going to use two words, but I'm going to define what the words are. We must do exegesis, not eisegesis. Now, exegesis uh, is a word meaning ek. We, we go in and we bring out of, that's what the word ek in Greek means, we bring out of the text what it says. Eisegesis, the word "ice," is the word for into and that's what we have to resist reading into the bible something that it does not say and the thing about it is there is uh, as we talk about the parable of the mustard seed today and the parable of the leaven there are some quite divergent and opposite interpretations of these parables by sincere christians trying to understand the Word of God. Uh, there is a theological perspective known as dispensational premillennialism. I'll leave it at that. I can just go into all, all of that, what that entails. But they have an interpretation of these parables, and it's an interpretation that I believe is unjust, unwarranted uh, interpretation of the text. Uh, and interpretations that I believe are diametrically opposed to what the scripture is actually teaching, therefore I would say they're guilty of eisegesis, though they wouldn't say that so it always, come, it, always brethren, it always comes down to who has done the better job of understanding how, what the scripture how it fits together that's what it always boils down to. And uh, we have to strive to be diligent at that. Someone could say, and and, and here's the point. If you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You can't be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Romans 8 says, uh, the fact is, if you have the Holy Spirit in you, that's what makes you a Christian. If you don't have the Spirit, Romans 8 says, you don't belong to Him. So every Christian has the Holy Spirit. So if every Christian has the Holy Spirit, then why don't we all agree? <laughs> Logically. You know, I mean, I've asked the Lord many times, Lord, why is it there's so, so much disagreement among, you know, sincere believers? Well, I can't say I have the fullest answer, but one thing I think is sure, the Lord wants us in His Word. He wants us to study the Word. He wants us to dig it out. And you know what? When you study the Word and you go in, how many times have you done this? That you're, you're trying to figure out something. So you say, okay, I'm going to go in the Bible and I'm going to do some study in the Bible. And after a while, lo and behold, you come and say, you know, I'm, I'm learning a lot that I didn't really know before I got here. And I'm learning more than what I intended by first going into the Scriptures here. Well, that's what the Lord wants us to do. In fact, Timothy says, 2 Timothy 2.15, tells us that we are to be diligent. Studies of the Word. If you look at that text, that is a great text. 2 Timothy 2.15, it says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the Word of Truth. So we, we, we must endeavor to handle actually the word of truth. But that means you have to be a student of the Bible. So <clears throat> these parables, these, these parables of the mustard seed and the leaven, um, we don't need to make them more complicated than, the, than they are. They're, they're not that complicated, actually. A lot of, you know, one of the problems here is that we we have a tendency, and maybe all all those are guilty at times of overcomplicating things that the Bible is simple about. I mean, there's nothing really extraordinarily difficult to understand about if you just let the text speak about the the parable of the mustard seed and the leavens we're going to see. Uh, And one of the things we should understand is that Jesus, in all of his parables, he's He's, he's seeking to teach a truth about the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven by the use of these parables, these, these stories that people would understand, these imagery that was common to these people uh, who were farmers. A lot of these illustrations, parables, have to do with uh, farming, which a lot of people were engaged in that. So, in this regard... We need not to overcomplicate these parables, but let them just speak as they are, and then let the Scripture guide us, especially the Old Testament. See, what we need to understand, the Old Testament and the New Testament are not these radical books that are... When we say old, that means it was done away when there was something new. That's improper understanding of old. Old simply means it preceded it. There is a development of, of biblical revelation in Scripture that, from truths in the Old Testament that are carried forward to the New Testament. And especially when you have imagery in the New Testament... It bids us well to see how that imagery is used in the Old Testament because the, the New Testament writers are always bringing up illustrations out of the Old Testament. And that is what helps us understand the Bible. So this, this notion, uh, for example, the theological perspective of dispensational premillennialism, they interpret the parables of the mustard seed and leaven as both being parables that teach something sinister, something monstrous about the kingdom of heaven. Which I and others believe that is totally unwarranted. That is not how we should take the parable. We should just take it at face value as to what it's saying. Now the mustard. So take a look at verse thirty-one. Here's the parable of the mustard seed. So here's what Jesus said: The kingdom of heaven is like. So he's drawing this analogy. He's comparing the kingdom of God to something. He says it's like a mustard seed, which he says which uh, which a man took and sowed in his field, and this is smaller than all the other seeds. At least in because it was the, one of the smallest of all of the seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. Now the point of his, if you just let that stay, the point should be obvious what Jesus is saying. The kingdom of heaven... Starts small like a mustard seed and then grows to be something big where, trees, where birds can come and nest in the branches. Big enough so, I mean, if you have a little plant, birds are not going to nest in something about three inches high. They ain't going to be able to do it. But this little tiny seed will grow into something big. Big enough that birds can nest in it so what Jesus is talking about the growth of the kingdom of God and and remember we got this he is saying the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God we're talking about that more uh, but those are synonymous terms they're not separate he says the kingdom of God is like this and there's nothing monstrous about that there's nothing uh, evil about this whole thing of a seed, small, growing to something large. And the imagery, remember, it's, it's helpful if there are Old Testament images of very similar things. And we do have an example of this. Turn with me to Ezekiel 17 and look at verses 22-24. to Ezekiel 17, beginning at verse 22. Thus says the Lord God, I shall also take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I shall pluck from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I shall plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the high mountain of Israel I shall plant it, that it may bring forth uh, bows and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shadow of its branches. And all the trees of the field will know that I am the Lord. I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will perform it. Now, in the context of Ezekiel, Ezekiel was a prophet of the exile. It, Judah had been punished for its, uh, its unfaithfulness to God. God used Nebuchadnezzar to come, destroy Jerusalem, and carry off those survivors to Babylon for 70 years. And we see here that being the prophet of the exile, People thought there is... What hope is there? That was a devastating thing that happened. And the Jews at that time thought that we would never, ever recover from this great tragedy. But God says, through the prophet Ezekiel, No. He says, I'm going to take a sprig, you know, a sprig, something small, and I'm going to plant it on a high mountain where everybody going to be able to see it. And it's going to grow into a cedar tree And it will become a stately tree. It's going to be a big, impressive tree for all to see. And big enough, and here's the imagery. Remember, Jesus said the mustard seed grows into a big enough plant or tree that the birds can nest. And Jesus was simply drawing imagery right out of the Old Testament with regard to this cedar tree where the birds come and nest. And so, what we see here, in during this time in Israel's history, the royal family of Judah is in utter desolation, and people are wondering: Are the promises of God ever going to uh, be achieved? And remember, back all the way back in Samuel's time, uh, Samuel and what we call the inauguration of the Davidic covenant says that. He promised David that he would sit one of his descendants on his throne forever. So Israel was wondering is that promise going to happen? Is it still going to come true? Sure doesn't look like it. <clears throat> so this, this Old Testament passage was designed to bring comfort to the people of Israel. And what God does, He takes a small spring. Puts it on a hill, like I said, where it's very conspicuous and it will grow and bear fruit and so much so that the birds will nest in it. Now while God takes down great trees, He can also take a small thing just like that sprig and just like that mustard seed and He can make it into a great tree. By the way, when you're talking about imagery, about birds nesting, here's another thing. What other images in the Old Testament do we have of birds and their nesting? What does it convey? Well, let's take a look at a couple. Turn to Psalm 104. Psalm 104, verses 12 and 17. Now, before I, I mention that, I hope <clears throat> you know what, what, what I'm seeking to do to you today with you. Remember I said sincere Christians can differ on issues? It all boils down to who's done the best biblical study. I'm just helping take you through a biblical study so that we understand the meaning of the parables of the mustard seed and loving. So we're doing a little bit of a study, and we're going to see, and that's what you do. You go to the Old Testament and you look at this. So Psalm 104, verse 12 in verse 17 it says uh, besides them the birds of the heavens dwell uh, they they lift up their voices among the branches in verse 17 where the birds build their nests and the stork whose home is the fir trees it talks about uh, this this peaceful serenity of uh, that's picture that's conveyed here uh, it's The idea of divine provision for the birds. And then we have, let's turn back to Ezekiel. Look at Ezekiel 31. Ezekiel 31, beginning in verse 3, and then verse 9. Now he's talking about, well, first of all, verse 3, he says, Behold, Assyria was a cedar in Lebanon, with beautiful branches and forest shade and very high, and its top was among the clouds. And in verse 9, he says, I made it beautiful with a multitude of its branches, and all the trees of Eden, which were in the garden of God, were jealous of it. You know, the thing here, here is, we know that Assyria was, in one sense, an evil empire. But it was a great empire, great in the sense that it was influential. That it conquered a great territory. And and what God is saying here is, anything that it has, any any impressiveness about it is what I have allowed it to be. And then if you if you look over, so that's Assyria. But He says, I can allow it to be great in that sense, but then I will bring it down. When I decide to bring it down, and he decided to bring it down. If you turn over to Daniel, look at Daniel chapter four, verse eleven. He's talking about Babylon and King Nebuchadnezzar. And in these visions that Daniel is interpreting for Nebuchadnezzar, here's what Daniel says. And and, and what you gotta understand is verse eleven. It's talking about this tree growing large and becoming strong. That's Babylon. That's Babylon. It's likened to a tree that's growing strong. And its height reached to the sky. That's imagery of how influential it was. It was visible to the end of the whole earth. So, as God allowed Assyria to be a great empire as he allowed Nebuchadnezzar to have an empire that was quite impressive and strong, what we're going to see is that God has a kingdom that will be even greater, even more impressive than these empires ever were. So the principle of the parables For example, the the principle of the parable of the mustard seed is this: growth from a small beginning to greatness. That's what it is. And though, and so that that's an an agrarian imagery, but to show you that something similar to that principle, look at turn back to Daniel. Look at Daniel two verses forty four. And, 45. and you'll see a similar principle, though it's not agricultural. It's something different. In Daniel 2, verses 44 and 45, it says, "In And in those days of the kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself will endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, and the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Daniel had interpreted the dream of Nebuchadnezzar. Who had this statue of differing metals, and he and what Daniel is saying, he says, he says, King, he says, you're the first one, but there's going to be an empire that comes after you, the Medes and the Persians, but then there's going to be one that will conquer them, the silver, that is the Greek Empire, Alexander the Great, and then he says, but there's going to be one even greater than them, one out of iron. And that's the Roman Empire. And remember, Daniel says, these are things that are going to take place. His interpretation dealt with historical events that were going to happen. And guess what? We live on this side of history, and that is exactly what happened. And who was born during the reign of Augustus Caesar? But Jesus Christ. And he says that's when the kingdom of God was established. And the kingdom of God is like this stone that was cut out of a mountain. But this stone grows and grows into a great mountain that crushes all these other kingdoms. See what that's teaching? Something that's small that becomes great and is victorious all over all the others. Jesus says, let me teach you something about the kingdom of God. It's like a mustard seed. It starts small, but it grows so large that the birds can nest in it. That's what the kingdom of God is like. It's going to be mighty one day. Brethren, God never fails on his promises. Like those who spied out the the promised land there in Numbers 13, We are told not to look at the present circumstances, but we are to look at what God had promised. The problem with the ten spies were, they looked at the circumstances, the great inhabitants, the big cities, the sons of Anak, these big giants that lived there, when God had already, already said, I've given it over to you. And only Joshua and only Caleb believe the promises of God. And therefore we we cannot we cannot look at present events from a human perspective and then from those present events say, Well, nothing's ever going to happen for you for you guys, and I know how uh, people today thinking, Oh, Oh, you guys that are post You guys that believe in the victory of the gospel. Oh, so it's so wonderful, John. Have, have you read the papers uh, lately? Have you read the. Well, now we read the internet. <laughs> have you looked at the internet lately? Yeah, it's pretty dismal. Oh, so you still confident? <laughs> yeah, because I don't depend upon the present. For my theology, I look to what God has said. How long was Israel in captivity? In Egypt? 400 years. 400 years. That's a long time. Imagine if you were one of the first generations. And people said, oh, you're going to be delivered one day? Really? (laughs) You're crazy. And generation, generation, generation goes by. Well, God's true to His promise. It came to pass. And so what we see here, we, we must learn to think like God. We must learn to live by faith and not by sight. That's what the Scripture tells us. Be gone with all the skeptics. Be gone with all those uh, relentless diatribes that they give against Uh, The church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Forget all of that. It doesn't matter. What matters is what God says in His Word. Our God sits in the heavens, as the Scripture says, and He laughs at His puny adversaries, who in one sense are no adversaries at all. Because what does the Scripture say? God sees all the inhabitants of the earth like grasshoppers. Like grasshoppers. And what is it? God can just step on a nation and say, Oh, I'll take out that nation. And go, Oh, I took out another continent. God is sovereign. When Jesus rose from the dead, when Jesus ascended into heaven, the Bible tells us, according to Peter on the day of Pentecost, he assumed. The throne of David that was promised. How do we know that? Because Peter quotes Psalm 110. That's how we know that. He just said that the promise of God' sitting one of David's descendants on his throne, that's when it was fulfilled. Now how many centuries lapsed before that? At least seven or eight hundred years? But it came to pass. It happened. And so, what Jesus is doing, He is sitting on that royal throne, and as according to Psalm 110, it says He stretches forth that scepter and defeats all His enemies. You know, in that context, you know how He defeats His enemies? It says... Thy people will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. You know, God can physically crush and destroy people. And he, he, if you do that, you destroy your enemy. But you know what? Praise God that the most common way he destroys his enemies, he makes them his friends. He converts them. He converts them. They will volunteer freely in the day of thy power. And so when Peter preached that great sermon on the day of Pentecost, what was the result? Three thousand were pierced to the heart. What must we do to be saved? And Peter led them to Christ. And the church, three thousand were added to the church that day, according to Acts chapter 2. And so what we see here, all I've done with this uh, in teaching about the parable of the mustard seed is take uh, some Old Testament imagery, which the New Testament is always doing. It's always taking Old Testament imagery. And we need to understand the Bible is one book, one book, with one great theme: Jesus Teaching Jesus all the way through, all the various covenants, all teaching about Jesus, and so there is a great unity in it amidst the diversity. There is a great unity, and here is what one of the most. Uh, <clears throat> so, we we can't overcomplicate biblical truth. We must not interpret things to fit into our own preconceived theological views. Well, let me tell you what a very famous dispensationalist by the name of Clarence Larkin said in the early 20th century. Here's what he said about the mustard seed. Now, this is his interpretation of the mustard seed. He says, quote, In the parable of the mustard seed, we see how the visible church is sought out as a roosting place by the birds of the air, the emissaries of Satan, and he quotes Matthew thirteen four and verse nineteen, who lodge in its branches not so much for shelter as but to befoul the tree. These are the false teachers of Second Peter two one and two, which are evident in our day. In the quote, now that's what he says. Uh, is the meaning of the parable. Another dispensationalist says, No, the parable is a sad forecast of the development of evil. The mustard seed tree, then, is corrupted Christianity affording shelter for false teachers. Now, I'm sorry, do you get that out of the, of the parable of the mustard seed? Is that immediately uh, what you think of? Now, yeah, it's true, it's true that uh, in the parable, in the parable of the sower, we are told that the seed that was sown on the roadside, that the birds of the air, which is representative of Satan, comes and picks it up so it doesn't even germinate at all. So what this man says, since that's what the parable of the sower says Satan is, And that the birds, then, are his emissaries, are evil, then that's what the parable of the mustard seed is. Brethren, you don't do Bible study that way. You let the parable of the sower stand on its own, and you let the parable of the mustard seed stand on its own. But you can't, it's not justified to take that imagery and then insert it into. That kingdom. Besides, remember Jesus is saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is that. So are we saying the kingdom of God is corrupted Christianity? Are we saying then that the kingdom of of heaven is, is evil? Does it signify the growth of evil? You can go and look at all these passages. I mean, like we've already done in several. Is that what it's saying? I don't think so. <clears throat> Why should birds be seen as adversaries? We just took we just looked at how the imagery in the old testament birds just simply nest in it in, in it because the tree is able to hold the nest. That's all I'd say. Every parable must be understood in its context uh, and therefore it's unjustified to insert what is said of the devil in the parable of the sower or the parable of the wheat and say that's what the parable of the mustard seed says. Because notice, Jesus explicitly said in the parable of the sower, the one who comes and snatches it up is the devil. He explicitly says that. Does he explicitly refer to evil in this parable? No. No. He doesn't say that. So, therefore, he ought to be suspicious to insert some foreign idea into the parable. By the way, you know why? When I talk about imposing a theological system upon the scriptures, dispensationalism has always taught that the church is a failure in history. A failure destined for defeat. Therefore, that's how you're going to interpret the parables of the mustard seed. Well, is the church of the Lord Jesus destined for failure? Look at Ephesians 1, 18 and following. Ephesians 1, 18-23. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened So that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, "...far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all." Now who's the king and the head of the church? Jesus. And it says he's seated at the right hand of the Father... far above all authority, power, and dominion in every name that is named. Now let me ask you something. Does that sound like a defeatist king to you? It's nowhere remotely a defeatist king. Especially when you understand what I've already said. It's quoting Psalm 110. There's no defeat in Psalm 110. There's nothing but victory for this Lord who's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And it says he's put all things under subjection under his feet, meaning Jesus' feet, and gave him as head over all things to who? The church. And the church is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Are you going to tell me that the church is destined for failure? No, the church is not destined for failure. The church is destined to fill all in all. Why? Because its king and its head is Jesus. Who you can't defeat. Remember, when he gave the great condition, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. All, I have all the power. And if you have all the power, who's going to beat you? Nobody. And that's why Jesus says, Go and disciple the nations, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the world. Now, if you got this. Great King who has all authority in the universe, who has all the power, who can defy him, who can stop him accomplishing his purpose through his church, nobody. You see, when you take, you look at the passage, the parable, of the mustard seed. You let it. Just let it speak naturally. And then you, you, you compare it to the rest of Scripture. I've already shared a lot of Old Testament promises. We've looked at New Testament promises. They don't fit into this perspective of defeatism. That's not allowing the Scripture to interpret Scripture. Well, let's look at the parable of 11. Notice what Jesus said. He spoke another parable to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took to get it in the pegs of meal until it was all leavened. Now, it's no mystery what leaven does. Leaven is yeast, right? Hey, I've cooked bread. I've cooked bread. I've watched the magic if you could say, of that little small loaf, you let it sit in a warm environment, you put that yeast in it, and what are you supposed to do? You go look at it every uh, 30 seconds? No, you just let it alone. Hour or so, you come back. Wow, it's kind of just, boom. How did it grow so big? Because the yeast, the leaven, gradually permeated all parts of that bread and caused it to expand. What is Jesus saying? That's the kingdom of God. That's the kingdom of God. It will grow and grow and grow until it fills the whole loaf. And it impacts the entire loaf. There's nothing complicated about that. And yet... Here's what, well, you know the name C.I. Schofield, don't you? You should, it's the Bible. If you ever read his notes on the parable of the Leaven, here's what you're going to find. He says, Leaven as a fermenting process is uniformly regarded in Scripture as typifying the presence of impurity or evil. The key word there, he says uniformly, meaning everywhere it's pictured as something bad. And he quotes Exodus 12.15 in this regard. And he goes on to say, now he's right in this regard, he says, Jesus talked about, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Watch out for those guys because they're insidious. And they have a way to influence people. Well, that's true about the leaven of the Pharisees. But like I told you, do words always mean the same thing in every context? No. But he says it uniformly represents evil. Oh, really? Well, let's take a look at some of these passages. Uh, First of all, let's turn to Deuteronomy 16 and look at verses 3 and 4. Deuteronomy 16, verses 3 and 4. Now, what Schofield, when he taught this, he he, he mentioned verse 4, but he left out verse 3. should not leave out verses, especially if they're important. So let's read verses 3 and 4. It says, and it's talking about the feast of the Passover. He says, You shall not eat leavened bread with it seven days. You shall eat with it unleavened bread, the bread of affliction. For you came out of the land of Egypt in haste, in order that you may remember all the days of your life, the day when you came out of the land of Egypt. Now, the thing about it is, the reason that God told Israel to eat only unleavened bread, because he, he said, Pharaoh has, given, has granted you to get out. Get out. It says, you are to eat unleavened bread for you are to come out in haste. In haste. You don't wait around for the bread to leaven, do you? You don't wait around however long it took in those days for bread to be totally leavened. You don't wait around for that. You get out now. So, since uh, they were to leave the Passover, commemorated their leaving in haste, he says, eat unleavened bread. He's not condemning leavened bread. He's just saying, because you you left in haste, eat unleavened bread. If you look at Exodus, turn over to Exodus 12, look at verse 34. It's talking about the Exodus, the leaving out of Egypt. It said, verse 33 and 34, it says, And the Egyptians urged the people to send them out of the land in haste, for they said, We shall all be dead. In other words, the Egyptians said, We've had enough of these Jews, these Israelites. Get them out of our territory as fast as you can. Just get out. So the people, verse 34, took their dough before it was leavened, with their kneading bows bound up in their claws on their shoulders. Now, let me ask you a question. What were the Jewish people commonly eating in their bread? Leavened bread, right? That's what they were normally eating. Are we going to say, as Scoville says, eat uniformly means, leavened means evil? Are we going to say all of Israel there was evil? Is that what we're going to say? Well, of course not. So here's an example. That leaven doesn't always mean evil. It all depends on the context. It's it's the leaven of the Pharisees, yes. But simple leaven in bread, there's nothing insidious about that. It's simply teaching things will grow when there's leaven. And such is the kingdom of God. So, context, context, context is what governs reading. And you've got to look at all of the context. Not only that passage where it's found. You've got to go, I read it. It says, all right, if you say it means always evil, let's go look up. I can get out of concordance. You know, back then they may not have it, but you've got a concordance. Well, let's look up every instance of love and see if that's the case. Well, it's not the case. That's the boy. And so what we see here, leaven doesn't represent evil. All it does is represent growth in time. That's all that it means in this text. I have no right to interpret it any other way. Unless I want to say that the kingdom of heaven is evil or something. But guess what? Dispensations make a distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. I don't know if you knew that, but they do. And what they mean by the kingdom of heaven is the visible Christianity and that the kingdom of God is that which is spiritual. So they make this radical distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. Well, the, the question is, well, are you right or not? Well, let's look what, what does the scripture say. Well, here's the deal. <laughs> Turn with me to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is when he began his ministry in Galilee. So he began to say to the people, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Alright? Now, that's what Matthew says. Well, what does Mark say? So turn over to Mark 1, verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God, saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Brethren, all that you see there is, Matthew used the term kingdom of heaven, Mark uses the term kingdom of God, but they're both speaking about the same event. Now, if there's a distinction between the two, and one is evil and the other is not, we've got a real problem on our (laughs) hands—a real problem of interpretation. Now, to show you in one in, in one passage that those terms are synonymous and they're not separate, turn over to Matthew 19. Matthew 19, verses 23 and 24. Now watch watch this carefully. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, it is hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. He's talking about the young rich ruler. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Now, is Jesus making some distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God? Well, no. Actually, verse 24 is, he's repeating what he just said in verse 23, but simply saying how difficult it is for a rich man to enter that kingdom. There's no distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. How clearer can it get? Really? Why the two terms? I mean, they are two terms. Why, why is it the kingdom of heaven used and the kingdom of God? If they basically are synonymous. Well, we could say this, that, that the use of the term kingdom of heaven designates the origin of the kingdom. Where does it come from? Remember, Pilate says, are you, are you a king? Jesus says, yes, but my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, the source of my kingdom is not this world. Because Jesus says, if it were, my disciples would be fighting right now. But they're not fighting. with swords. No, my kingdom's source is heavenly. And the kingdom of God uh, is stressing on simply the fact that it is a spiritual kingdom on this earth. And Daniel said, by the way, Daniel said if you remember when we read Daniel 2.44 he says that stone will grow that the kingdom of God began as that stone and grow to a mighty mountain that's the kingdom of God so there's nothing evil there's nothing sinister about the kingdom of heaven it's just explaining you know one emphasizing the source of where it comes from and the others emphasizing that it fills the world That's all it's doing. You see what I've done today? What I've done, I trust, is show you, yes, there are people who are sincere who have interpretations, but you have to see who has done the best job of interpreting the Scriptures. And I say those who've done the best job are those... Who just let the parable stand as it as is? It's not hard to understand. It's a mustard seed. The kingdom of God's a mustard seed. It starts small but don't grow big. It's like loving. Given enough time, it's going to fill the whole loaf. That's the kingdom of God. There's nothing evil. It's glorious. That's what's taught. We don't have a defeatist God. We don't serve a God who has ordained defeat for His church. Uh, The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the apple of God's eye, according to Scripture. The church will prevail. Ephesians says the church will fill all in all. And as discouraging as the present cultural events are, I say again, you have to trust the promise of God and not and live by faith in that promise and not by sight. And Jesus is comforting people. See, it's comforting to know that God's promises will be fulfilled. That's comforting. Let me end with this passage. Turn over to 2 Peter 3. Look at verses 3-13. through Now, this is on the other side of the resurrection, so a lot of the arguments given here may have been given to you at some point. Oh, you Christians believe that Jesus is coming back again? You talking about the second coming, Christians? You really think that's true? Come on, Christian. Has He come? I mean, how many centuries have gone by, Christian? He hasn't come. He hasn't come because He will never come. And they mock you. Well, look what 2 Peter 3 says, starting at verse 3. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, falling after their own lusts, and saying, where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. For when they maintain this, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at the time was destroyed by being flooded with water. But the present heavens and earth, by his word, are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. But do not let this one fact escape your notice, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Let's stop right there. See, so he says he can't use time like the mocker says. He hasn't come. Nothing has changed. But what is, what is a thousand years to God? It's a day. Do you think a day is a long time? Not really. Well, that's like a thousand years to God. So what? He hasn't come, by, come back and 2,000 years. I don't think if you say, I'm going to be back here in two days, that's very long. But that's like 2,000 years to God. So all these people say, your Jesus is coming back? <laughs> he hasn't ever come back. He's not coming back. Well, if you're looking at it from your human perspective. You need to look at it, what God says. 1,000 years is nothing, God. Then he can He continues. The Lord is not slow about His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth, and its works will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? Looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, on account of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Brethren, when Jesus wins planet earth, and he will win planet earth, he will come in all of His glory. And <clears throat> He will come in the glory of His kingdom. And when He comes in the glory of His kingdom, despite all of the critics who said, you know, when is He coming? When that day arrives, they're going to say, just like those in Noah's day, when it began to rain, and went, uh-oh. Maybe He wasn't crazy after all in building this ark. And when Jesus comes in all that glory and all are gathered before Him and then all the skeptics will say, "Uh uh-oh, I guess those Christians were right after all. And when the Lord Jesus comes in that glory, He will come and He will wipe all our tears from our eyes. And all our sorrows will be laid aside. And our hope will be achieved. It's coming. Be patient. The promises of God will not fail. They will not fail. They are coming. Just believe your God. Just believe His Word. And when His Word says His kingdom will grow... From the small beginnings and fill the whole earth? Believe it. Believe it because God said it. Let us pray.